1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's watching part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, Conditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Uh, To find out more, visit lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He's a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be visiting with Emily Mooney, she is a research fellow at the uh, R Street Institute. Sharon Kenny is the author of Where Should We Eat? She writes commentary on dining, travel, and entertainment in South Florida. And Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, will be joining us as well. It is October the 16th, and on this day in 1854, an obscure lawyer and congressional hopeful from the state of Illinois named Abraham Lincoln delivered a speech regarding the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which Congress had passed five months earlier. In his speech, the future president denounced the act and outlined his views on slavery, which he called immoral. Under the terms of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, two new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, or would be allowed into the Union and each territory's citizens would be given the power to determine whether slavery would be allowed within the territory's borders. It was believed that the act would set a precedent for determining the legality of slavery in other new territories. Controversy over the act influenced uh, political races in, uh, across the country. Abolitionists like Lincoln hoped to convince lawmakers in the new territories to reject slavery. Lincoln, who was practicing law at the time, campaigned on behalf of abolitionist Republicans in Illinois, Illinois and attacked the Kansas Nebraska Act. He denounced members of the Democrat Party for backing a law that assumes there could be a more right to enslaving one man by another. He believed that the law went against the founding principle that all men are created equal. He was an abolitionist at heart, but he realized that outlawing of slavery in states where it already existed might lead to civil war. Instead, he advocated outlawing the spread of slavery into new states. He hoped this plan would preserve the Union and slowly eliminate slavery by confining it to the South, where he believed it would surely die a slow death. Lincoln and his fellow abolitionists were dismayed when Kansas vetoed, or voted a pro-slavery candidate into Congress. As Lincoln's political career picked up momentum over the next several years, he continually referred to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and seeming uh, inevitability that Kansas should become a slave state, a a violence, it was conceived in violence, passed in violence, and maintained in violence, and to be executed in violence, he said. Lincoln continued to actively campaign against slavery in Kansas and helped raise money to support anti-slavery candidates in the state. Meanwhile, he continued the law and practice and ran for the U.S. Senate in 1859. And, uh, of course, you know the rest of the story. He became president, and unfortunately he was assassinated at Ford's Theater. Well, Florida Democrats are already holding their narrowest lead in the state over the Republicans and registered voters have seen the edge shrink even further heading into the November election. Final results from last week's voter registration deadline show Democrats holding a wafer-thin 140,242 voter advantage over the GOP out of 14.4 million voters. According to the, this is according to the Florida Department of State, the lead was three hundred and twenty seven thousand during the 2016 election. Registered Democrats represent thirty seven percent of Florida voters, Republicans, thirty six percent with no party affiliation voters and minor parties that remaining twenty seven percent. That's a big number. I didn't realize that. 27% unaffiliated. Paul showed Democrat Joe Biden holding a narrow lead over the president in uh, Florida, but Trump targeted Florida for his first campaign rally earlier uh, last week since contracting COVID-19, and he is, has events planned uh, Thursday in Miami and Friday in Ocala and Fort Myers. So he's calling to Fort Myers. That's going to be a closed event to about 400 folks, uh, but uh, so glad he's coming. here. probably raising money. I don't know if you saw the dueling debates last night uh, tuned into didn't tune into the Biden debate, but did to uh, to President Trump's debate or town hall. ABC News George Stephanopoulos failed to ask former Vice President Joe Biden at the town hall Thursday night about his new email evidence that his son, Hunter Biden, arranged a meeting with him for an advisory corrupt Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, in 2015, uh, now, the New York Post reported emails had been obtained from abandoned laptop in which Hunter Biden's correspondence with a senior Burisma official was preserved. The Wall Street Journal's James Freeman wrote this uh, yesterday. Many Trump voters who tune in to ABC tonight will be fully expecting the anchor to invite undecided voters to ask the former vice president if he thinks the president is being mean to the Biden family. Mr. Stepanopoulos could also dodge the issue by inviting Mr. Biden to share his opinion to the New York Post. On the other hand, tonight also represents an opportunity for ABC to set itself apart from the raft of media companies new and old, that have dedicated the last 36 hours to suppressing a damning report about their favorite candidate. Regardless of the particulars of the Post reporting, Hunter Biden's overseas windfalls have been been clear for a while. ABC should hold the former vice president to account for the abuse of his office. Despite having 90 minutes in which to ask Biden the question, Stephanopoulos never did so, nor did anyone in the audience. What a shame. The suppression is unbelievable. It, to, me, it, to me, it makes me sad to think that the mainstream media is sticking this story under the rug. It's a big story, and uh, what you find on, on Hunter Biden's laptop is clear evidence of what uh, these claims are. President Donald Trump participated in the NBC News town hall, uh, but one woman seated behind the president immediately caught the attention of the viewers, When President Trump denounced white supremacy, spoke against rioting and looting and all other issues, she quietly nodded in approval. She also gave a big thumbs up at one point as Trump was speaking. The moderator was Savannah Guthrie, who was in attack mode. She was attacking the president all the time. She was asking about QAnon and nonsense that I'm sure nobody cared about. It was so unprofessional. Uh, We watched uh, Tucker Carlson instead. I don't know about you, Tucker did a great job last night. The mainstream media went into overdrive to dismiss Wednesday's New York Post bombshell, revealing damning emails allegedly found on Hunter Biden's computer, with some outlets simply ignoring the development and others doing their best to cast report the report as dubious. Uh, the New York Post reported it entitled, A smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessmen to VP Dad." touched on suggestions that the former vice president's son had unscrupulous financial and business ties to a natural gas firm in the Ukraine, Burisma Holdings, and that his father later stepped in to have a probing prosecutor fired for looking into the matter. The article also claimed that the outlet had been given emails showing Hunter had introduced his father to a top executive at the energy firm less than a year before the prosecutor was forced out If it's true, the developments could be extremely damning to the Democrat less than three weeks before the election, but many media outlet organizations were shockingly incurious about the October surprise. CNN completely ignored the story on Wednesday, somehow managing to fill its airtime while also skipping almost the entirety of the historic Amy Coney Barrett hearing. The controversy escalated throughout the day as both Facebook and Twitter began suppressing the Post's report on their platforms, claiming it violated the policies against hacking and publishing certain private information, <laughs> sparking a major backlash from conservatives, journalists, and lawmakers. Twitter's own CEO, Jack Dorsey, even admitted they botched the situation. Despite Big Tech uh, becoming part of the story, the uproar wasn't enough for CNN to mention even to its viewers but liberal CNN wasn't the only organization to ignore or dismiss the story. Being the loyal Democrat foot soldiers that they were, ABC, CBS, NBC, all censured or censored the bombshell from uh, the evening newscasts. It's really no wonder that liberal networks were hiding this extremely damaging information from their viewers. This, according to Fonda Caro, this, uh, and added, since they refused to cover the Post Trump bombshell by extension, they couldn't talk about the Orwellian censorship from Facebook and Twitter as they tried to frantically stop the story from spreading. At one point yesterday, actually, Twitter went down. So there's a lot going on. A lot of people took notice of this Post story. And, you know, this, these are not claims by anonymous sources, which you find in the, in the mainstream media all the time. These, there's actual... <laughs> There's actual uh, emails back and forth. There's evidence, clear evidence of what was going on, and it's also there was new evidence released yesterday about what's happening with China, as well. He, apparently, Hunter Biden had arrangements with China to make as much as ten million dollars a year. Uh, was or some of the arrangements? It's uh, just an unbelievable story. It's just it's so sad that the mainstream media is not covering this. They're running cover for Vice President Biden trying to get him elected at any expense. Uh, Biden's campaign national press secretary Jamal Brown cited Twitter's recent censorship of a New York Post story potentially damaging to their cl- campaign and claimed the true uh, story must be false because Twitter is censoring it. What illog- <laughs> what's, what kind of logic is that? Well, anyhow, this is a this is a big story. Here we are only 18 days from the election. And uh, this information is being covered up. It's so damaging and so uh, so sad, really. All right, coming up, I'm going to visit with William Yateman. He is a research fellow uh, with the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs>
0: Or of the Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service... reservations are needed, check out the website at Lulubees.com and stop by Lulubee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulubee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time.
0: Bob show. And now here's your
1: host, Bob Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Emily Mooney from the R Street Institute. Right now we have with us William Yatman. He's a senior fellow hey. at, the, at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure indeed. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: You bet. We're a free, we're a think tank here in uh, Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government.
1: Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. I'd like to start with just the astounding uh, interference that Twitter, Facebook, these uh, media companies are running to protect the president from this, or vice president, former vice president, from this bombshell about uh, the laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop that was found in a in a, uh, I guess, a computer repair store. What are your thoughts?
2: I can't imagine a better way for the social media giants to shoot themselves in the foot than what took place yesterday with, or I guess, over the last. Uh, two days um, with this New York Post bombshell. It's—I'll uh, uh, say this: that Twitter and Facebook's of the world. Um, it is very much in their interest to not act like a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, this Section Two Thirty that I'm, I'm sure your listeners are uh, acquainted with, but mm-hmm. um, shields them from liability for for uh, comments and the like or third-party created content. And uh, sort of the sine qua non of this protection is that they're platforms and not publishers. Um, so when Twitter and the Facebooks of the world dip their toes into politics like this and then pick and choose which stories are suitable for public consumption, they set themselves up for outrage. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a proponent of, of Section 230. I I'm, I'm generally believe that government ought to take a very light touch when it comes to regulating these entities. but. It's just stupid. I mean, they're inviting the very sort of outrage that would uh, threaten their very existence. Um, So I find this to be just astronomically stupid by Twitter and Facebook. And, And I say this, counterproductive, too. Um, You know, I wonder the extent to which this story is now been more widely circulated because of their efforts to suppress it than it otherwise would have been, although it is a big story.
1: (laughs) Well, it it is. It's extraordinary, too, that, uh, for example, uh, the other uh, liberal media outlets, maybe that's a... Duplication there, but the lib- the uh, media outlets are all claiming that it's a uh, it's a dubious source that they you know it's on un- uh, now the same media outlets that say from anonymous sources <laughs> make these claims. Uh, the the point being that uh, the mainstream media is running interference, and uh, to your point, even though this is stupid, it's almost like a kamikaze mission trying to protect the vice president up until the day of the election.
2: I uh, second that, and I'll say this: these kind of the ridiculous links and self contortions which members of the media have gone to to somehow distinguish this story as being not newsworthy. Um, to your point, it wasn't. But three weeks ago, when the New York Times published all sorts of, of highly privileged information about the president's taxes, mm-hmm. taxes that that under federal law it is illegal to be disseminating. I mean, you know, regardless of how you got it, so it is uh, to to me you know if 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 that is the criteria if we're not supposed to pay attention to this new york post story because uh, potentially it implicated some sort of hack um, well then, geez, Louise. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's been four years of news detrimental to Trump that has been based on less. So I don't quite get that.
1: Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, Cato Institute, you're a, a you know, bi- bipartisan or uh, unpartisan uh, in terms of your outlook—democrat or Republican. But the key, the, the issue here is the mainstream media is supposed to hold to account politicians. Uh, to government officials, and they're not doing that. They're actually performing a different role, which is almost participating as a in the campaign for uh, uh, Vice President Biden.
2: Oh, here, look, uh, I am bipartisan, so I'm a libertarian. Um, but you don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to be partisan. You don't. It doesn't take a, a consideration of partisanship to recognize the mm-hmm. fact that um, certainly in the new media. Uh, it's values-laden, and, and expressly so. I mean, we had the New York Times Guild of Writers impugning one of their own editorial writers, Brett Stevens, for having the temerity to question um, uh, really the, the kind of truthfulness of the 619 Project. And, mm-hmm. and that really gets to, to. I'm old enough to remember a day and age. Um, when the journalist was sort of this this tough get at the story person, mm-hmm. um, whereas now they wear their politics on the sleeve on their sleeves, avowedly so. And and I do think, without waiting into the politics at all, that that is detrimental to not just the business of news, but also to the body politic.
1: Also, well, and of course, the uh, town halls last night were so partisan. It was un- uh, just so unfortunate that Savannah Guthrie is asking the president about QAnon. <laughs> Who cares about that? There's so many Indeed. important things going on, and no mention by Stephanopoulos about uh, the Hunter Biden uh, participation or, or email. So... It's a sad commentary indeed. So, uh, and by the way, uh, of course, the FCC chairman is going to be looking at this Section uh, 230 to strengthen it. And there's going to be hearings. Apparently, uh, Hawley from Missouri, the Senator Hawley, is uh, going to call, get a subcommittee meeting going for, uh, to get both of the, the CEOs of these companies in to question what's going on. So that's a, that's a positive, positive development, although it will happen probably after November the 3rd.
2: Well, uh, indeed, I will just respectfully, um, on this particular issue, I, I do oppose sort of the, the mechanism of having the FCC uh, uh, unleash Section Two Thirty, if you will. But yeah. at the same time, I recognize that these are the very predictable political results uh, of the same things Facebook and Twitter were doing this week.
1: Absolutely. Let's move to the uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett's uh, confirmation. How, what are your thoughts on how things are going?
2: Well I uh, will say this about the hearings um they didn't tell us really much of anything at all uh, about the the nominee about uh, Barrett um but they did tell us a great deal about how the two parties go about the law and this was uh, a bit eye opening but my colleague Ilya Shapiro actually has an excellent article about this at CNN um but it, the Democrats, quite uh, avowedly, were making the case that there is no distinction whatsoever between law and policy, um, that there are no bounds imposed by the text of the law on what judges can do, um, whereas uh, Republicans were, were kind of to a to a person, to a senator, um, much more so of the belief that, that the law does impose bounds on what judges can do when it comes to policy-making it. And I thought sort of the stark, the, how stark that contrast was was yeah. eye-opening. I mean, yeah. to be sure, these, these confirmation hearings have been charades for a long, long time, but typically it's been self-promotion by the senator. The, the extent to which both sides staked out divergent positions, the meaning of the law, um, was eye-opening to me. And, and I'll say this again, i i I'm, 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 I'm uh, not a fan of either political party but i do find it somewhat distressing the extent to which democrats in the senate seemingly have abandoned altogether the law as a limiting principle
1: i couldn't agree more it's it's quite sad i mean that what they can't accomplish it's through legislative process they want the judicial branch to uh take <laughs> to uh get it done and uh, frankly they just need to take control and need to uh, first of all, develop good policies, and second of all, promote them among the people so that uh, they can move their their case forward. Instead of that, I think they're just playing dirty, dirty politics and counting on the judicial branch uh, to support uh, their progressive agenda. This is a sad indeed. Again, William Yatman, the uh, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I always appreciate your commentary here on the show, William. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. So much more that I'd like to discuss with William, but right now we're going to move to Emily Mooney. She is a, uh, a research fellow. She's with the R Street Institute. We're talking about juvenile uh, Florida juvenile justice reform. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Thank you.
0: Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board, and I hope you'll visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Dave Bego, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Right now we have with us Emily Mooney. She's with the R Street Institute. Emily, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, Dave.
1: My pleasure. Tell us about the R Street Institute.
3: So Archerate is a nonpartisan public policy research organization that seeks to promote free market, limited government solutions to the public policy problems of today. Um, I work on our criminal justice team, and so really at the the base level, we're focused on promoting public safety, human dignity, and fiscal responsibility.
1: So you've been focusing, Emily, on uh, issues in Florida, especially the uh, juvenile justice reform issue. Uh, Maybe you can tell us about it.
3: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thanks for the intro. So really as the whole entire nation looks at ways to promote racial equity and reduce racial disparities throughout our criminal justice system, um, really in a recent piece I argued that we should start with juvenile justice. We should start with kids who um, at this point and in Florida specifically are black youth in Florida are historically um, diverted or moved away from the criminal justice process at a much lower rate than white youth. Um, And and much in fiscal year 2017 to 2018, they were 310% more likely to be arrested than white youth. So this is pretty alarming considering that national data suggests little evidence of racial differences and delinquency rates for the most common youth offenses, particularly low-level offenses, which are the young people that are eligible for diversion and alternatives to arrest. Um, so really in this piece, I argue that we need to expand the use of youth diversion so that all children are able to uh, benefit from this opportunity. Um, in, in Florida, the recidivism rate for uh, Florida's pre-arrest civil citation diversion program is as low as 4%. If hmm. you go to the statewide diversion services, which is a little bit later in the criminal justice process, their uh, recidivism rate is as low as 11%, so a little bit higher, a little bit farther down the process. And then when you look at kids that are on probation or in detention, that's when recidivism rates continue to climb. Um, so getting getting kids the help they need, but outside of the juvenile justice system, is actually better for public safety and better for kids.
1: You know, I, in a broad sense, that's true. And, and I, I wonder, though, about the, apparently, the, as I recall, the Parkland shooting, this guy had been uh, diverted. From the criminal justice system, I'm talking about the shooter now, and uh, ended up committing a heinous crime in in uh, Parkland. That uh, so, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I think it's first of all, there's only there's almost always going to be one case that kind of you know spoils the bunch, so mm-hmm. to say. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's certainly the case with the Parkland shooter. But when we look at most young people that are diverted and have this option to have an alternative to arrest. You're looking at low-level misdemeanors. You're looking at uh, young kids who are trespassing or maybe have a misdemeanor drug violation or an obstruction of justice, you know, misdemeanor obstruction of justice, charge, maybe some vandalism. Um, these are kids that, and and as I pointed back to that recidivism rate, you know, 96% of the time are successful. And that, you know, considering what the alternative is, right, so we, we don't have the counterfactual what it would have looked like if the Parkland shooter was, and maybe he, he shouldn't have been diverted and he... Um, that was the incorrect choice in his camp, in his case. But we know that 96% of the time, it's the correct choice. It's better for public safety, and it's better for the young person. Um, Detention and probation and some of those deep-end system uh, solutions actually are associated with a lot of harms to young people, right? They can have a formal juvenile record, yeah. Um, they might be, their educational outcomes drop. They're more likely to be in one study it was more likely to be incarcerated as adult, if you're incarcerated as a young person. Um, and so we actually, we don't know if, you know, holding him in a cell or certainly we don't know about the Parkland sh- shooter, but in other situations for most kids that are getting this, di- these diversion opportunities, we're actually, we would expect them to be worse off. We would expect them to be more likely to return to crime if they weren't offered this yeah. opportunity. And, Looking at uh, Collier County, of which Naples is a part, um, right now only around 58% of kids who are eligible for these opportunities, these alternatives to Rust, are actually able to claim that opportunity. And when you look at Miami-Dade, Pinellas County, you see utilization rates of closer to 90%. So actually, right now the fear and the concern should be um, what's happening, you know, to those, you know, almost 40% of kids. Uh, that now are being pushed farther down the system, and as we know, are, are more likely to actually return a crime because of
1: that. Yeah. So, Emily, uh, you're making great points. I think, to me, the the question is, uh, what kind of program is available for these kids that would, uh, for example, instead of getting into the juvenile justice system, uh, go through some sort of an education program, go through some sort of a process that that uh, gets them back on track and uh, really supports their you know, yes, getting into mainstream society as opposed to becoming a juvenile criminal. So, uh, what kind of programs are available?
3: Yeah, so every every county under the twenty eighteen law that Senator Jeff Brandis worked on, um, every county has to have at least one civilization or alternative to arrest program throughout Florida. And so, uh, each of those programs is going to be a little bit different. But really, the goal of diversion programs is to look at that individual youth. What are their issues? And what services do they need? Because of what you exactly raised. We want to make sure that we are correcting for those factors that are promoting their delinquent behavior. We know that kids don't offend out of a vacuum, right? You have Mm -hmm. adolescents have much different brains than you and I. um, And they're really susceptible to peer pressure. They really have a difficulty um, anticipating long-term consequences. Um, A lot of these, you know, kids, particularly less uh, maybe misdemeanor, but kids that have a, a repeat offenders, a lot of them have a history of trauma and other, you know, adverse childhood experiences that can promote their poor decision making. And so we want to make sure that we are addressing those and the diversion process. Um, so like you said, so we get them out. And a lot of the, the programs are all different. I won't, I won't speak to their particulars. Um, I encourage folks to look at uh, what's offered in Collier County if their young person is, is having some issues. But, um that really the goal is to have individualized services for that youth um yeah. and that back to your previous question there there is a sense of well what what about the parkland shooter right about like these these cases that hit the news and and seem to say that this program isn't worth our while um but you know as, as a conservative myself and you know for the conservative enables um it's really important i mean we we could do the same we could lock everybody up and then have maybe guaranteed safety, but that's not the, that's not the way this country was founded. We have a presumption of innocence. We have a belief in life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, and so even, you know, for our young people too, we have to do our best, um, protect liberties, to not, you know, punish the, the many, um, at the, you know, because the actions of one, um, and be smart about our policy. And sometimes that means we make the wrong decision and, um, you know, in the parking case again, we don't know what the counterfactual would have been if he wasn't offered that.
1: You that know, that's right, that, Emily. So, yeah, so
3: opportunity.
1: Yeah, you're making a great points and actually preaching to the choir because I agree with you. the 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 issue that I think with the Parkland shooters, is it, it was portrayed at least in the news that he there was really no consequence, no slap on the wrist, no education. He just continued on with the life as it as it was. So uh, I'm all for what you're suggesting. And uh, the, the problem, of course, this is happening in an environment where the law is not being enforced, for example, in Portland, Oregon, and there's all kinds of crime, mainly because of district attorneys that won't enforce the law and, uh, you know, in hip inhibitions on law enforcement. So uh, I'm all for it, but in an environment where we're, you know, enforcing the law.
3: And, you know, that's a, that's a great point. Actually, sometimes, I mean, law enforcement, different, every. Everybody has a different perspective on what the role of government is in some of these offenses, particularly misdemeanor offenses. But when we're looking at this great program that Florida has, the civil citation pre arrest diversion program, it actually it gives, you know, law enforcement officers and, you know, prosecutors and, and other members in our criminal justice system, other actors, an opportunity to do something that's good for youth and seems uh commiserate with the offense but act and that's proven to restore you know public safety and to promote their rehabilitation in a better way and so in some of those areas i'm you know less I'm less familiar about their youth diversion in portland but actually having a good you know light touch intervention because it's even though it's odd sometimes putting too many things into a program or putting too many restrictions on a young person can actually backfire yep. um, if you think about the time when you're your parent grounds you for, you know, not finishing your dinner. That feels really unfair. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well,
1: you're you're making great points, Emily. So how can we support your efforts? What would you like us to do?
3: Yeah, I think the best thing that folks can do is, uh, you know, talk to the folks in Collier County and say, we want the utilization rate. Right now it's only 58%. So that means less than six out of every 10 kids who are eligible for pre-arrest diversion or civil citations are actually getting that opportunity um, tell your, your, you know, district attorney and other folks that we want to see that rate increase. Um, a couple of months back, some of the African-American leaders, religious leaders throughout the state, uh, you know, had a, had a speech and talked about that they really, if they, as part of their racial equity plan, they want to make sure that black youth are, are encouraged and are part of that, that effort and that they're getting the same, you know, opportunities to be diverted. And, um, that should be true for black youth in Collier County. That also should true for white use. There's no reason for these utilization rates not to be closer to 100% like they are in other places.
1: All right, Emily. What is the uh, website of the R Street Institute?
3: It is rstreet.org. So the R, the word street, and then .org. Okay, okay.
1: rstreet.org uh, is the website. Emily, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. My Have
1: pleasure you. indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Sharon Kenny, the author of Where Should We Eat? We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the website (laughs) I host my website here Uh, let's see if I can get this thing removed Uh, here we go on the Bob uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network
0: stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network
1: You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on bobharden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It reminds me, I forgot to mention that Life in Naples Magazine is now a new uh, partner with The Bob Harden Show, so you can stay up to date and uh, be in the know with what's happening uh, by reading Life in Naples Magazine. Go to lifeinnaples.net. We have uh, with us Sharon Kenny. She's the author of Where Should We Eat? She also writes commentary on travel, dining, and entertainment. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Great to talk to you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much. Bye. I mentioned travel. I saw a column about a bunch of cruise ships that were all being turned into scrap metal because of what's happened with this with this uh, pandemic here. That's just, it was such a sad sight to see <laughs> that the the cruise ships are being, I mean, there was uh, like six or eight of them right there, that, this huge yes. cruise ships. That, that's so sad.
4: Well, you know, they have a life of their own. They're like cars, you know? And, uh, they need to be, uh, the cruise industry gets criticized a lot for being, uh, uh, you know, polluting. And so the lot, those, a lot of those ships are old, old ships. And ah. so to retrofit them to modern, uh, fuels and, um, to have all the modern conveniences, Wi Fi, plumbing, could you imagine? Those ships are out, Three hundred and sixty five days a year yeah. they don 't take any off so um, they 're selling a lot of the cruise companies are selling ships. I know I just heard about a ship being sold to China. Um, some of the other uh, some other uh, smaller lines are taking on cruise ships that are still viable but a lot of these cruise ships are older. They're just not viable anymore, and they would have been scrapped anyway, but this has accelerated that process for a lot of the companies.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, because I thought it was just a, a, an indication of how we're seeing the demise of the cruise industry, but uh, that, that makes sense. I Maybe mean, they wear out. They're not... you got to get new stuff. Just it's, It would make, with homeless people all around, why couldn't we just stick them in a cruise An old cruise ship. <laughs> Put them
4: in a cruise ship, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's so interesting. Well, Hey, you know, we're starting to see activity pick up here uh, on the Paradise Coast. And uh, you're always in touch with what's going on, especially with regard to new new restaurants. Any, any update?
4: Well, certainly the big news this week is stone crab season started yesterday. Ah. October 15 to May 15 is stone crab season. So um, everybody was excited. Uh, they were saying that stone crabs would be coming in at some point yesterday. Excuse me. So uh-huh. last night, uh, stone crabs were supposed to be available. I have not made it out yet. Uh-huh. I haven't ventured out. But here's my top picks for where you can get stone crabs, because uh-huh. I am excited to get out there. This, uh, we, ha- we had an okay year last year. The year before was terrible. I don't know if you remember.
1: Uh-huh.
4: With, with, all of the, uh, with all of the issues we had with uh, red tide and that a couple of years ago, the stone crab season was very disappointing. But we're all good... Uh, hoping for a good season this year. So, my top picks, if you want to go get stone crabs, and a lot of restaurants bring stone crabs in just for the season, mm-hmm. you know, just especially at the beginning when everybody's excited. Mm-hmm. So, probably number one would be Trulux mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue. They
1: True have, have a Trulux... Have that they have their
4: own stone crab fishery.
1: Yeah, they have, they have their own... Uh, they have a special life for stone crabs each week, too, don't they?
4: Yes, they have their own fisher fishing set up down there in Everglades City. And so, um, TruLux is probably all-round your best choice if you want to, you know, an all around nice dinner. Um, that would be a great choice. Hmm. But then there's a number of places you can go. Uh, certainly to buy stone crabs on your own. Stone crabs, when you buy them, they're already steamed. So if you don't, you don't have to cook them. You don't have to do anything. You can eat them right out of the bag.
1: <laughs> and and, you, and they're good cold.
4: They're great cold. Uh, you can warm them up in the microwave, but really eating them cold is kind of better because the, the, the meat congeals, you know? Mm-hmm. It gets, it gets easier to eat. Mm-hmm. And you have to get the mustard sauce, uh, to dip it in. But yeah, I like them cold. I used to get them warm, but no, get them cold. So number one, I would say is Winds. Wins Market, uh, right there on 41 mm-hmm. has a great, great seafood store at the back and, uh, they are always my number one choice for stone crabs. Swan River Seafood, up by USS Nemo, it has is not just a restaurant, but it's also a fish counter mm-hmm. where you can buy your fish to go. I was there this week, and they said stone crabs will be available at the end of this week, so it's the end of the week. Um, and so, you know, Swan River is if you want to not cook them yourself or deal with that, go in and just eat them at at the restaurant. Wow. Captain and Crew is a seafood um, counter and restaurant that's across from Cambier Park in downtown Naples. And they always have a great selection of uh, stone crabs. They originally started out as a fisherman uh, who owned his, who started his own stop shop, and they had their own boats. And so they were always the first to get stone crabs. But um, those are, I'd say, my top four places. But a lot of the other restaurants, as I said, will bring them in and, you know, it's a great way to start the season. That's a, for, anything, for more than anything, it's the marker for me that the season that started mm-hmm. in Naples is when the stone crab stuck.
1: Well, that is so interesting. As I recall in previous conversations, uh, crabs can regenerate the uh, claws themselves, so it's not like you're killing something in order to—they they actually grow back a new claw. Am I, am I correct on that?
4: Yes, you're right. The stone crabs have usually one large claw and one smaller claw. And when you cut off the big claw, they have to be a certain size. Mm -hmm. And uh, you cut it off, throw them back in, and they can regenerate them. I don't think they're real keen on it. Yeah. You know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably not. (laughs)
4: But yes, they can regenerate it. So they say they can regenerate, I believe it's up to three times.
1: Wow, amazing.
4: So you don't have to feel bad about eating your stone crabs.
1: Uh, So interesting. Any new restaurants opening up?
4: Well, we have um, some restaurants that are reopening. I've heard that all of the restaurants up at the Ritz Carlton have now reopened.
0: Oh, So that's
4: good news. And um, we're anticipating that we're going to get another one or two. So the um, South, not South Street, the Seventh Avenue Social has just reopened and it is now. Seventh Social or something. I can't remember the exact... It's a play on what the original name was. Um, But this is the restaurant that's across from City Hall, just just around the corner from from, uh, Cambier Park. Just reopened this week. New managers, new chefs. So that was always a nice uh, local's place. Looking forward to seeing that again. But, you know, one thing I do want to talk about, Bob, is... Everybody's anticipating what kind of a season we're going to have right now, October, is when people would already start coming back. Right. But with the border to Canada closed, mm. it's going to be very interesting. This will be the year with no Canucks.
1: Really? I mean, a lot of Can- uh, Canadians come down, they have a place down here. They have, can't stay longer than six months, as I understand it. Uh, but the, the border is closed. The border
4: with Canada is still closed, and so you certainly can't drive. You can come over, I believe, if you have family. Mm. But, um, yeah, the, the, also with all of the COVID stuff, it's a real issue. But, yeah, the Canadian border is still closed.
1: That's a big deal. Sharon Kenny. again, the author of Where Should We Eat? Sharon, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk to you always, Bob. Thank you so much. Canadians are not coming down. That's going to have a big impact on tourism this year. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. We're going to do that and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. Welcome
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Dave Beagle, as I mentioned before the break. He's the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It's his story of the travails of dealing with union bosses from SEIU over the course of two and a half years. He prevailed, but you can't believe the dirty tricks they played in order to get him to sign a neutrality agreement. He refused to do it. He said if you want to unionize our shop, 6,000 employees in, a, in over 40 states, he says you're going to have to do it by a secret ballot. They didn't want to do that. Now, why is that? But they uh, ended up just leaving after two and a half years. And Dave prevailed, wrote a book about it, The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks, Bob. And people do need to read my book because all that's going on in this country today, all this attacks and agendas and riots and all the things they say and do are the same things they used against me.
1: Yeah, well, I'd like to give you some credit because uh, everything that you have prognosticated, everything that you've predicted uh, in your book and uh, on the show here is happening right now. I mean, it's, it's literally, this is a, this is almost a revolution.
5: Well, it is. And, um, you know, um, with, with what's going on right now here, and I think this is important. And, uh, I have a friend here in town. He's, uh, he's over 80 years old, but he sent me an email this week, um, that I think that, uh, you and your, your people should hear, um, and it's about Nikita Khrushchev. And um, 60 years ago, people said it will never happen. Well, it is happening. And Khrushchev's message 61 years ago, um, I'm not going to read the entire quote, but I'm going to read some things that uh, mm-hmm. that he said in it. And um, um, he said, your children's tr- children will live under communism. You Americans are so gullible. Uh, no, you don't accept communism. Right. But we will keep feeding you email doses of socialism or small doses of socialism until you finally wake up and find you already have communism. We will not have to fight you. We will so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. The democracy will cease to exist when you take away from those who are willing to work and give to those who would not. Yeah, Uh, yeah. that is so prophetic. Yeah. And he says there are eight levels of control. Control health care, increase poverty, increase debt, remove, r- remove guns, you know, gun control, mm-hmm. welfare to people, uh, take control of every aspect, uh, you know, people, food, everything, and, um, yeah. religion, get rid of religion, remove the belief in God and class warfare. Does that sound like what's going on today? That sounds
1: exactly like what's going on today. You know, uh, Norman Thomas. Uh, ran for president uh, on the uh, communist ticket uh, four times. And he said, here's a quote, the American people will never knowingly adopt socialism, but under the name of liberalism, they will adopt every fragment of the socialist program until one day America will be a socialist nation without knowing how it happened. And he went on to say, I no longer need to run as presidential candidate for the Socialist Party. It was a socialist party at the time. The Democrat Party has adopted our platform. That's, well, that's unbelievable. That's
5: exactly right. And, well, the Democratic Party is controlled behind the scenes by the far left and by the unions. And, and um, you know, that's because, you know, they keep bragging about how much money they're uh, being making through donations and that. And that's because the unions are pouring all kinds of money in there. And the unions, Bob, are doing bad things. You know, remember the Janus uh, versus Ask Me um, thing was passed several years ago where, uh, unions couldn't forcefully take uh, dues out of um, government employees' checks, Yeah, but they're still doing it, and all that money is going to the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable, and I'm watching what's happening with regard to this election, this bombshell email that came, or came out about uh, Hunter Biden with living proof, real proof of emails sent back and forth with members uh, of uh, Burisma in the Ukraine damning evidence and showing showing that uh biden was lying about his association with the son and what was going on and now some information coming from china that's damning as well and the mainstream media is running interference it's just unbelievable this is happening and even for face facebook and twitter are covering up in order to enhance uh the biden's campaign
5: well bob it's like i said on your show many times is that uh you know, the, um, the left is, um, they control the media. So the media, just like last night, you know, on the town hall meeting, that gal, <clears throat> she was, uh, she blasted Trump quite a bit on things and, uh, <clears throat> went after him that, but he was more professional last night. I'll give him credit for that. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, behind the scenes, they're still doing all these things because, um, you know, they're communist and, uh, they, um, they're connected to uh, China and, uh, and all things like that. And uh, what, what Khrushchev said is basically what's happening, yeah. not just Russia, but, uh, you know, other countries to their communist socialist countries uh, are uh, through our uh, stupid political people trying to bring this country down.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. David, since you mentioned the uh, town halls, did you happen to tune into the Biden town hall? How can you? Uh, did you tune in? To the, uh, no, I did not. I'm okay, sorry. no. Okay, so uh, but you did. I tried to watch a little bit of the Trump one, but it was Savannah Gunth- Guthrie, who was the moderator there. She was anything but a moderator. She was in attack mode. I yes, thought. Yes, she was. And yes, she it, was. I thought she was so unprofessional. She's she's bringing up QAnon. I mean, what's that got to do with what's happening right now in the nation? I mean, all the other things that are going on, burning down Portland, <laughs> whatever, whatever uh, we're, and, and this is what she brings up. I thought it was just criminal.
5: Well, Bob, this is what they do, though, and uh, their whole objective is to bring down Trump and uh, the, uh, the Republican Party and, mm-hmm. and take over this country. And, uh, you know, and again, and I know people get tired of hearing me say this, but it's the truth because uh, i've been through this i know what their objective is and you know what i read you about Khrushchev. Uh, they've been trying to do this for a lot of years is behind the scenes bring us down and infiltrate us and uh you know they lie to people and tell them yeah we're going to give you this you're going to get free health care and free this and and cheaper this and all that kind of stuff and at the end of the day it's all about making them a, making us a socialist communist country so they can control us. Yeah. And at the end of the day, everybody's going to be much poorer and much better, worse shape than they are today.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. If they're successful, um, what are your thoughts on the 18 days from now and how Trump is doing?
5: Well, I, I, I think he's doing fine. I think it's going to be close. I think he still has to get out there in front of the people. And um, I think he has to continue to be professional out there because... You know, when you when even on Fox, when they talk to some of these people about uh, who are on the fence, you know, which way you're going to go, uh, they say, well, we're still trying to decide if we can, can like how um, the president handles himself and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's that's one thing that he has to understand. And, he, and you know, he's a businessman. He's a tough negotiator. And that's how he's growing his business so big because he knows how to stand up to these people that are, I think they're tough to go negotiators, but it's different in politics when you're facing the American people and you're facing uh, other people out there uh, that you've got to get on your side. It's not negotiating with them. It's, and I tell, and I've told this in the past and maybe you don't remember it. Uh, I told even when you're working with people and trying to get them on your side, it's not about getting into their head through the front. It's getting in, Through the backside of their head because you embrace them and try to get a relationship with them. To the point where they go, yeah, yes, so, I'm going I'm to vote for him.
1: So you got to win their hearts, not just their minds. Well, I'll That's say right. this. I mean, I think Trump is leading an important movement. The movement is we're all sick of the establishment. He's trying to drain the swamp. And he has, I think, amazing enthusiasm from th- those that support him. The question is, are there enough those support him that will be able to stand up to what you've labeled as you know, an approach and assault by socialists, turning us into a socialist nation? And we certainly hope he's successful.
5: Well, I think he will. I think it's going to be close. uh, But like I say, he needs to be uh, very professional and be out in about uh, for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I I think he can win. And um, I I had to make a trip uh, to the Far East side of Indiana two days ago. And I I couldn't take the interstate because they were doing a lot of construction on it. And um, so I did back roads and everything. And. Bob, it was pretty interesting because I, uh, you know, I was going through farm country up here for the most part, mm-hmm. and um, I was really amazed at how many uh, farmers and people out there in the small towns I went through had Trump signs in their yards and Trump flags on their flagpoles and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it, encouraging. It was very heartening it was.
1: It's uh, very encouraging to see all that. Well, we'll see how this all turns out. Again, Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Please visit his website, thedevilatourdoorstep.com. Get his book. You can get a copy of his book on my website at a nice discount, of course, at any book purveyors as well. The Devil at Our Doorstep by Dave Beagle. Dave, just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Well, thank you, and I hope every American out there stands up and wakes up to what uh, the left is trying to do and uh, keeps our president in office.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did. Uh, if you uh, send me a comment, uh, if you'd like to get on uh, the distribution list for uh, my email that I send out after each show, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Hope you'll join us on Monday. We're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. will be talking about current world affairs. Larry Reed will join us. He's the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the uh, who is cur- currently going through the nomination process for Supreme Court. And Jim McTagg will be joining us, the author of Shake the Money Tree. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>